Please turn with me then to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Thus far as the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Contempt, defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration. Worthless or deserving of scorn. Sadly, what is becoming more apparent to me is that this world we live in today is filled with contempt. Disdain for people, for offices, for institutions that were at one time viewed with reverence, respect, and honor. Now there is disdain for people who aren't like us, who don't think like us. We can look to examples at college campuses throughout the, the country now. One portion of the student body will invite a speaker in. Another portion will protest and riot just so that they can prevent the speaker from coming, coming in and, all, and offering a, an alternative view on something. Others have such disdain for someone that they will try to get them fired or lose their job. They will wish evil upon them. I mean, you better be careful in this day and age in what you say and what you do in the workplace. right? Because the slightest thing, you could be in big trouble. I recently read a story where this woman was called into HR at her job. And for the reason of doing the no good, very bad thing of wishing someone Merry Christmas during the Christmas season. That person was so offended that they were willing to go to HR and ruin that person's reputation perhaps. Get them fired. All because they felt offended by what someone said. They had disdain for that message that person was giving. And although this contempt seems to be growing for as long as I've been alive, none of us are naive to think that this is anything new. Contempt has always been in this world. We can think all the way back to Cain. Cain had contempt. He had disdain for his brother, Abel, as Abel found favor with the Lord. And it was this contempt, this disdain for Abel that was the catalyst of Cain's striking down his brother. It was contempt, it was disdain that Joseph's brothers had for him because he was loved more than, they all, than all of them by their father, which was the catalyst of them selling Joseph then into slavery, wasn't it? Yet sadly, brothers and sisters, this, this contempt 
isn't just something that they deal with and that we're free from. Contempt isn't a them thing and not a Christian thing. Sadly, contempt lies within the Christian faith as well. And how do we know this? Well, first we know this because Paul has to tell the saints how they are to behave in the church. He tells them how we are to conduct ourselves in verses 12 through 15 in our text today. He has to tell them to have respect, to be at peace, and to do good. This isn't something Paul would have to tell the saints if there was no issue in Thessalonica. If they were always respecting those in authority over them. If they were always at peace with one another. If they were always out there doing good. There would be no need to tell them this. Let me give you an example. If you have a a quiet, shy, mild-mannered child. And let's say you're, you're in the car ride to another family at church's house for for a dinner. You wouldn't tell your quiet, mild-mannered, shy child, when we get there, make sure you don't run around their house and bounce on their furniture and swing from their ceiling fans. No, that's not what you would tell them. What would you tell them? You would say, hey, when someone speaks to you, make sure you speak up. Don't sit in the corner by yourself. Interact with the other kids. Talk. You would tell them to do the very thing that they have trouble doing. And what Paul is doing here to the saints in Thessalonica is no different. And so we see that Paul's very need to instruct them how to behave is one way in which we know that we are not free from this contempt as Christians. But another way that we know that we ourselves are not immune from this contempt is through experience. It's through experience. Each and every one of us here today has at some point in time in our life in the church been irked by someone in the church, felt that someone in the church has slighted us. And some of us reacted by going around to our close friends in the church and telling, telling them how horrible of a person this person is. And we did so in an effort to make them look at them with that same scorn that we had for them. Others perhaps didn't do that. Maybe you just kept it and let it fester and build up inside of you, this disdain you had for them. And you were okay to not be at peace with them. I'm never speaking to them again. Because they wronged me. And the reason for this contempt, both from the world and for the church, is because we are all sinners. We are all sinners. This is how sinful man has always acted throughout the course of human history. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, about what the ungodly man is like. And he says that they are led by the flesh and the desires of the flesh are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All things that are either the the cause or the result of contempt. But for the church, this behavior should not describe us, brothers and sisters. The church is the place where the redeemed meet and the redeemed gather. The church is a place where not the spirit of the world resides, but the spirit who is from Christ. Yes, the church is made up of sinners, isn't it? But it's made up of sinners who have the spirit of Christ and are are led by the the spirit of Christ. Led into obedience of Christ. One of the promises of the new covenant is that the moral law is going to be written on our heart. 
And that heart that is going to be written on is a new heart. A heart that no longer has contempt and hatred and disdain for others, but now a heart that loves. And so, brothers and sisters, that contempt that we once showed towards one another ought to now be directed towards sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness. Those are the things we ought to hate and ought to disdain more and more. Not one another. And yet, as it seems like we've made a, a, a great pivot from our last sermon in this text about the day of the Lord, we aren't to view this text this morning in isolation from that last sermon, in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 5. Remember, and he's describing the, the day of the Lord and how the saints are to be, live expectantly for the return of Christ, right? Well, now what we learn today is Paul's just being clearer about how we are to live expectantly for the day of the Lord and His return in the church. In particular, what does His life look like in the church? And so this is what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. How are we the body of Christ to live? How would our Lord have the church conduct itself in order that He be glorified? And that the church would reflect that glory to the world. Well, Paul really breaks his conduct down into three points. And it's those three points that we are going to consider this morning. And the three points are this. We are to have respect. We are to be at peace. And we are to do good. Have respect. Be at peace. Do good. Now, our first point, have respect. This Greek word for respect here means to know. So in verse 12, it could be read like this. We urge you to know those who labor among you. This is the same word used in a passage like Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, where Jesus heals the paralytic man and forgives his sins. And we read that the, the scribes get upset with him and Jesus replies, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Right? What Jesus is saying is that you might know, that you might see and acknowledge this authority that I have. And so this is what Paul's getting at here in verse 12. He instructs us to acknowledge those who are over us, to have a high regard for them. And why is that, does Paul say? Why are we to have a high regard for those over us? Because of their labor, he says. And so we can understand why it's translated here for us in verse 12. Respect. To know them for their labor is to acknowledge or to respect them for the nature of their work. That is what it is. And respect is something that is in short supply in this day and age, isn't it? We see this in relationships like parents to children. When I think back, my older brother and I would never, ever do or say so much of what we see children today do and say. We, we know better. Right? Children today, right? they throw fits in stores. They slam doors on their parents. They talk back. They call their parents by their first names even. I would never imagine to do that to my parents. Right? And that lack of respect for, for parents then leads into what? Then that just leads into school. Right? You have these unruly students becoming disruptive. Right? Not respecting teachers. Not respecting the principal. 
You know how many stories I've seen where in college campuses, policemen have had to come in and remove students who are unruly and refuse to leave the classroom. And what do you think happens? They don't respect their parents. And they don't respect teachers and principals. That bleeds out into broader society. They're going to respect no one. No respect for the police. No respect for the military. No respect for their employer, for government officials. And today, this seems more commonplace than ever, I feel. And what's behind this lack of respect for people in authority? It's that prevailing attitude that I will not submit myself to anybody. No one's going to have control over me. Nobody's going to tell me what I can and cannot do. And so the question is, do we share that view here today? Are there any of you sitting here today that believe that same thing? No one's going to control me. I'm not going to submit to anyone. Now surely all of us, if we ask that question, would say, of course not, that's not how I feel. Of course not. But I would ask, what do your behaviors describe you as believing? What are your behaviors, children, towards parents? Is it one of submission? What is it, adults here, is your attitude towards your employer? Is it one of submission? Or is it one of rebellion? Because this tells us what we truly feel. What is truly in our heart. For God wants us to offer submission cheerfully and joyfully. Not begrudgingly. Not dragging our feet. Because we have to understand that to refuse to submit to those in authority over us is tantamount to refusing to obey the authority of God. Because it is God who has placed these people over and above us. Their authority is derived from Him. This is what Daniel tells us. In Daniel chapter 2, as he praises the Lord for revealing to him King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we read this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. We read in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. I mean, we could think even about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Right? You can't get any clearer about the command to obey those in authority over us. And so what Paul is simply saying here is that we in the church likewise are to submit to those over us in the church. We are to submit to our elders in the church. And so for anyone here who might hear this, or someone who might hear this down the road, whether you like your pastor or not, this is not sufficient reason to not submit to them in their authority. Maybe your pastor is more introverted. And you think a good pastor should be an extrovert. Someone who's, who's out there just riling up the crowd. Right? Or maybe your pastor wears red ties and you really think a good pastor should wear blue ties. No matter what it is, none of these are good reasons for us to demonstrate a lack of honor and respect to those who are above us. This is what Paul points out. And yet, what we also must keep in mind is that 
while we complain about those in authority over us, especially in the churches, we, if we complain about our pastor. Right? If we go home and tell our spouse how we could do it so much better, be aware that probably at that same time, your elders are working on your behalf. They're laboring over you in the church. And so it's hard enough that they have Satan attacking them and the outside world attacking them. It's not helpful when their own congregation seeks their downfall as well. I mean, who do you think Satan casts the majority of his attention upon? Christians in general? Absolutely. But pastors more specifically. Satan would love to destroy just one Christian. But you know how he can get at so many more? Is destroying one pastor. That will send reverberating effects throughout the entire church. It could cause churches to close down, to shut its doors. And so then, what does Paul tell us that their labor entails that is so worthy of them being acknowledged and highly regarded? Well, Paul says that pastors are those who are over us in the Lord and that pastors have the task of admonishing as well. You see, some of this lack of respect for ministers, I feel, is because people don't understand what ministers do. They don't understand what the ministry is. They think you just get up here and you talk for a little bit after preparing the night before for an hour or two. That's far from what the ministry is, brothers and sisters, right? Ministers give themselves to the Word. They watch over the souls of the sheep, which can be tiring. It can cause a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of worry and fret and anxiety. Right? They lead the saints by feeding them God's words. They administer the sacraments. They execute church discipline. They spend an enormous amount of time in prayer for the saints. They counsel. They, they visit families in the sick. Many ministers are on the congregation's beckoning call. Their every whim, even on their day off when they're eating dinner with their family, before they put their heads down to go to sleep, they can get a call at any moment and have to rush out. And so still, even if your pastor isn't the one that you would create and mold, if you had the ability to create and mold the perfect pastor, we are to respect them. We are to respect them. And we are to respect them because God has commanded it. God has commanded that we respect those in authority over us in the church, and so we do it. Yet secondly, we are to respect them because as ministers, when he exercises his authority over us in the church, he in actuality represents Christ's authority in the church. He's not exercising authority on his own accord, but authority that was commissioned to him by God, that he was tasked with and called by the church with and equipped for. To guard the word, to guard the hearts of the saints, to admonish all. And this is why Paul says that we are to esteem these men very highly in love because of their work. And so I ask you here today, can you say you love your pastor? Can you say you loved your pastor? I hope we can. And you want to know the best way that you can show your love for your pastor? Each and every one of you daily can hit your knees in prayer for your pastor. That is the best way that you can show that you love your pastor. Believe me, they need the prayers. 
This is a way in which you can return and bless them. As you pray for them, that God might watch over them, that He might protect their minds so that it would not stray. He might protect their, their hearts, that He would give them strength and courage and boldness to proclaim the Word. This is how you can show your pastor that you love him. Pray for him. Another way that you can show him that you love him moves us to point two. You can be at peace with your pastor. You can be at peace with him. Point two, be at peace. Now when Paul says in verse 13 to be at peace among yourselves, this statement is applicable to both what is said uh, which preceded it and that which subsequently comes after it. And so we're going to look at both of those. So first we can be at peace in the church with our pastors when we stop criticizing them and stop complaining about them and instead cheerfully follow their teaching insofar as it is faithful to the Word of God. I wouldn't get up here and tell any of you that you must follow teaching if it's an error or heretical. No one's saying do that. But you know also what is really helpful to ministers is to have a congregation that's teachable. You make our jobs a lot easier when the congregation is teachable. When everything that we say doesn't come back with a fight. When you say, well, my old pastor told me this. But rather being open. Being willing to, willing to listen and to learn. Right? This, this is very helpful to your pastor and will create peace. But we've all probably been a part of churches or, or heard of churches that weren't at peace with their minister, right? And what happens? Usually animosity grows, tensions in the air, and this is not an ingredient for a healthy church, is it? No. And this is what we see going on in Thessalonica. There were some who didn't respect Paul who didn't respect his labor. And we've seen that in chapter 2, didn't we? Where Paul has to defend himself because these false teachers are coming in and saying, Paul only cares about himself. He doesn't really care about you guys. What he's teaching is an error. And Paul has to come in and defend himself. There were those in the church who did not respect him, who did not value his authority, who did not esteem him highly. we also seen that in chapter 4. There were those who were teaching that the resurrection already occurred. But what did Paul say? He's already told you. He already told you everything there is. There was no more to tell them. They already knew this. But there were those who came in, swooped in, not respecting what Paul had taught, trying to create division in the church, teaching that the resurrection had already occurred. And dissension started. But the church shouldn't be a place of dissension. It should be a place of unity. This is what we see Paul praise the Philippians for in Philippians chapter 1. He praised them for being of one mind, right, in one heart, in unity, standing side by side in the gospel. Does that describe us here today? It should. Right? Because the church is a place that we gather irrespective of where you were born, what your background is, what tax bracket you're in, what your favorite football team is. Right? We gather irrespective of all those things because in common, we have Christ. And that commonality should trump any differences that we have. As we look to the, the sake of Christ, what is good for Christ and the church. But in the church, we are not only to be at peace with our pastors, but we are to be at peace with one another. Right? Paul says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. 
And believe me, I know it can be really hard to be at peace among yourselves. There are so many different personality types here. So many different maturity levels. But let me tell you something. This is one of the most beautiful things about the church. Where else in the world can you see such a vast array of differences? And they come together in genuine love and concern and unity for one another. You can't find it anywhere else. A place where we come and we count ourselves inferior and our brothers and sisters more important than ourselves. This is why you cannot see this replicated in the world. But this is our Lord's grand plan as He brought us together, as He called sinners to Himself. And so we ought to ask ourselves, how in response are we ought to live then obediently to God's Word and be at peace with one another, even though we have different types of people in the church, even though different people struggle with different things? How are we to be at peace? And Paul really gives us three ways in which peace is achieved in verse 14. He tells us to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak. Which means what, Paul says? At the end of verse 14, it means being patient with them all. Right? Patience is something very hard to come by. But if we want peace, we must be patient. This world is quick to put people down, to trot over the weak, and to exalt the strong. But if we want peace in the church, we can only maintain it by heeding the apostles' instructions. And so if a brother or sister is idle, which means unruly or disorderly, so if a brother or sister in the church is unruly, we are to admonish them. Admonish means to instruct or to warn them. Right? The unruly member is going to stir up trouble. They're going to break the peace of the church. And so we ought to admonish them, to warn them what is going to happen if they continue in this behavior with the hope and the goal of repentance and they would turn away from those sinful practices. But you see also that each type of person within the church is not to be approached in the same manner. We are to approach them in the manner that suits their situation. Are we to approach the one who is unruly in the same way that we are to approach the one who is faint-hearted or discouraged? I think not. And we see in Paul's letter his demonstration of the different approaches that he takes to people. How do we see him speak to those who are troubled? In chapter 4, that their dead loved ones have missed the resurrection. He begins in verse 13 by calling them lovingly and tenderly brothers. Brothers. And in verse 18, telling them, now encourage one another with these words. The saints were distressed, they were troubled, and Paul comforted them. He encouraged them. What does this do? This helps the one who is troubled. Have peace of conscience now. Now I know what is going to happen to my dead loved ones. They can have peace within themselves, which then enables peace amongst the brethren. And so if we are to admonish the unruly, And to encourage the discouraged, what are we to do for the weak brother? Well, Paul says that we are to help the weak brother. Just like the weak brother whose conscience would not allow him to eat meat. What did Paul call us to do? 
Was it to get a big fat juicy steak and eat it in front of him? No. No, because what, what would that do? All that would do was cause fighting. And that would break peace. And as Christians, we are not to use our Christian liberty, our freedom, to cause another brother hurt or harm, are we? No, we're not to do that. We are to be pursuing peace. For peace is the very fruit of the Spirit. And so peace ought to reign in the church. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to ask ourselves this day, are we peacemakers? Are we peacemakers? For we are told that only peacemakers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And as that redemptive kingdom here on earth, the church, we are to reflect that heavenly peace here and now amongst ourselves. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I I know I ought to admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, seeking to be at peace with my brothers and sisters, but I am so impatient. I am so impatient. These kind of people just get under my skin. But just because you are impatient doesn't mean it's okay or that we should be. For impatience breeds hostility in the church. It breaks the bond of peace and unity. And this is why Paul tells us we are to be at peace with them all. And the only way you can come to peace is by being patient. You have to be patient with the shortcomings of others as well as knowing that others have to be patient with your own shortcomings. And yet, patience is hard to come by. Why? Because it's not natural to us. Patience is not natural to us. If it was natural to us, it would be easier. But rather, patience comes from above. Patience is a gift that God gives to us with the express purpose of cultivating peace. This is why we have patience. So that we can cultivate peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 5, May the God of patience and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another and in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify God. And so, brothers and sisters, today, if you struggle with this, if you struggle with peace and you struggle with patience, go before the Lord seeking a greater measure of both these things. Ask the Lord, and He will grant it to you, for this is His will for us, peace and patience. And so then this brings us to our third and final point this morning. As we have already seen that Paul says that the Christians' behavior in the church is to be one of respect and one where we are at peace with one another. Paul also says that we are to do good to one another. This is point three. Do good. This is what Paul essentially says in verse 15. Look with me there. He says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The world the civil sphere, the broader society in which we live in is bloodthirsty. They're bloodthirsty. They love to see the one who has wronged them get theirs. And when it happens, they're high-fiving, saying, yes, they got what they deserved. Right? We love to see vengeance executed on the one who has wronged us. But should this be the behavior of the church? Those who are called to imitate Christ? No. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 to 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul is saying to us is this. If someone shows you contempt, if someone shows you hatred and disdain, your response as a Christian is to go out of your way to show them Christian love. That is what we are called to do. When someone shows us contempt, we are to go out of our way to do good to them. And we don't do good to them for the sake of getting one up on them or because we have to do good to those who do bad to us. But rather, this should be the inward disposition of our heart. It should be the frame of our heart to desire to love all men, creating the image of God, to seek the good of all men, whether they do good to us or evil. This is the church's calling, as Paul says in verse 15. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good. Always do good, Paul says. Always, to everyone. Not just believer to believer, but likewise believer to unbeliever. Believe me, doing good to just believers would make life a whole lot easier for us, wouldn't it? If all you had to do was make sure you were good to other Christians. But that's not what we're told. Because, brothers and sisters, Christian morality transcends the building for which we meet and worship in. Being a Christian and doing good is what we do and how we behave at all times and to all people and in all places. And so even if the unbeliever at work is disrespectful to you, before you try to repay them for what they did to you, ask yourself, what is my reason for serving Christ? Is it for my own glory? Because if it's for your own glory, that's the wrong motive. Those are selfish motives. Our reason for serving Christ ought to be for His glory, even if that means to our detriment, even if that means that we have to be embarrassed or humiliated or suffer. Because this is not what Christ Himself did. This is not what Christ did Himself. His death was for us. It wasn't for Himself. And even though for our sake He was beaten and He was spit upon and He was laughed at and mocked and ridiculed and nailed to the cross, all the while they looked upon it with delight and joy. What was Jesus' response? Was it, Father, right now, kill all these people. Give them what they deserve. This very moment. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus' response was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an act of love. To repay the greatest act of evil ever committed upon a man with the greatest act of good to repay the greatest act of evil with the greatest act of good, His death and the offer of salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, as the church, let us mimic our Lord for His honor and to the praise and glory of His name. 
let us depart with any contempt that might reside still in the cracks of our hearts. May we be found respecting those elders who rule over us. May we be found having peace with one another. May we be found doing good to all people. May we be found doing these things when Christ our Savior returns. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. We thank You that You are present amongst us and working within our hearts. We pray, Father, that You would teach us this day all that it is that You'd have us to do as Your body, the church, that we might glorify and honor You, that You might grant to us a greater respect and love for those who are over us, that You might grant to us a a more willing desire to be at peace, that You might grant to us uh, the desire and willingness to do good to all men, not for our own glory, but for the glory of You, our Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.